having a very productive, brief few moments together, and it makes me realize that we need a week, and even then we wouldn't begin to accomplish a third of what we have scheduled on the agenda. Now, that is not our method of trying to uh, prepare you for having your paper, if it's last, to be unaddressed at this conference. But as I begin to realize how much there is to say and how many people need to be heard and need to express themselves, it makes me wish we did have about a week together. But I'm sure we will have a very productive day tomorrow and hopefully then in communication in the weeks and months ahead in conferences, both regional and annual ministerial conferences we can expect in the future, perhaps even more so. Recently at one of the campaigns up in Salina, Kansas, I was explaining to the people up there how I happened to get kicked off a very important radio station, or I believe a television station if I'm correct, 2CH, must have been a, a television station, but I really forget in uh, Sydney, Australia some years ago. My father, for my living memory, has said thousands of times, as I mentioned this morning, as a challenge to the people in the many, many churches of this world, Baptists, Methodists, Episcopalians, Protestants of all type, and perhaps Catholics as well, why haven't you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, for an American, you know, you can hear Ian's voice and his accent, and he speaks what is called strine. Now, strine is a short, you know, there's Australian in there, if you hear it, when they say it. And you've seen these ads on TV, G'day, and this fellow would say, go out to the Western Australia, and they say, G'day. And if you've seen the ads trying to get people to, well, of course, if you go to Australia, you're basically free from terrorist attacks. They're not blowing up Qantas air, airplanes departing L.A., so far as we know. So I imagine they're trying to increase tourism down there. So I imagine that if you were sitting there in Sydney, Australia one day, and this strain-sounding American with an Oregonian, Californian, East Texas twang, and that's quite a mixture, comes on television and says, shaking his jowls as best he can to imitate his father as perfectly as he knows how, why have you never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, the letter CH meant church, and the station was owned by the Anglican Church, and the, the station management also happened to include the president of the Council of Churches for the whole nation of Australia. They didn't take real kindly to this upstart young American evangelist coming down there and telling all the Aussies that they'd never heard the gospel till I arrived on the scene. That was the most preposterous thing that they had ever heard in their lives, and they promptly kicked me off the station. Now, my father got wind of that, and he was very unhappy. I won't go into all of that, but he told me that I was trying to wreck the work and a few other choice things, and uh, terrified me. Because, you see, what I was doing was emulating, almost imitating, if you will, what I had heard and what had been drummed into my head and what had been written in literally hundreds of letters and dozens of articles and many, many booklets. I don't know how many countless editions of the Good News, Tomorrow's World, and the Plain Truth magazine about what is the gospel and the fact that this world has never heard the gospel, that the gospel is not a message about the person of Christ, but is the message he brought. You see, I could even pause and put a comma after he exactly the way my father did for decades. I could rehearse that in my sleep. Now, I went before those people in Salina and also recently on a television program to say my father and I during those many years, and I include myself, were only half right. 
I want to explain that a little more fully today to show you how, in fact, we might not really even have been all the way half right about what is and what is not the gospel. Bear in mind that when he said the gospel about the person of Christ, he is dealing with the person of Christ as he was portrayed to you growing up as a child. The little Lord Jesus away in a manger born on Christmas time was overshadowed by his mother and your prayers to his mother in some churches have greater efficacy as in the Romish church and the one of Greek orthodoxy than they do to Christ himself or God the Father. So I have to bear in mind my book The Real Jesus and the fact that I believe that Jesus Christ of Nazareth of the Bible who is the creator God of the Old Testament, the one who wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger, who divided the Red Sea, who was there to get in the dust of the earth and wrestle with Jacob and to reconfirm the promises made to Abraham and to Isaac, the God who actually caused the she-bears to kill the people who ridiculed his prophet Elisha, the very God of the Old Covenant who dealt with the prophets, the only God known to the ancients, the one to whom David composed all of his psalms, who became that person of the Godhead who was made like unto human flesh and became a human being called Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now tell me how many great churches of this world, great or small, know that about Jesus Christ. Is the Jesus Christ they preach Lord of the Sabbath day? Mark 2, 27, 28. Well, already, even by just pointing out the Sabbath, you have literally done away with all of Sunday-keeping Protestantism, and you only have remaining the Seventh-day Adventist, the Seventh-day Baptist, the Church of God, Seventh-day, the Worldwide Church, ourselves, and some other offshoots of the Worldwide Church. In other words, Seventh-day Sabbatarian organizations. So, maybe it's a matter of focus. It is not that a single one of these Protestant ministers says, I know that I am preaching a two-horned dragon and calling him Christ. Any more than I think the Pope wakes up every morning and says, I'm the beast, I'm the false prophet, and I'm going out and do some false profiting today. I don't, think, I don't think the Pope thinks that. I think the Pope probably is a sincere man, probably overawed at his own dimension and responsibility. Who knows what goes on his mind? How can you judge the man? I can't and you shouldn't because that's God's job. He will judge him. I think it's a matter of focus. You know, we're very familiar in television and motion pictures with blurred images, how the camera can zoom way out and we can see something happening hundreds of yards away and then come back and show something in the foreground and the, the patchwork, kind of a crazy quilt tapestry of the background just becomes a lot of blurred images. I think the Protestant ministry of this country and of the world in general has a kind of a blurred image. They have the name right. They have much of what he taught. They can preach the Sermon on the Mount to you just as well as anybody. They can tell you that he died for your sins and make it so eloquent they will move you to the point of tears, and many of them do, and make you want to repent and to receive and to accept the Jesus Christ they talk about. So with those parameters, please, understood, when I say they are preaching a false Jesus Christ, I do not mean that they are aware of that fact, that they know that they are preaching a false Christ. It is more like a blurred image. They do not have the Christ of the Bible in sharp, clear focus the way I believe Almighty God has presented that Jesus Christ to us. They do not see Christ the man, Christ the human, suffering on the stake, screaming in agony. I was 
chastised by one lady recently who didn't know about the missing verse in Matthew, had never read the Farrar Fenton, and simply did not know that the sequence of verses, if it is correctly portrayed from the original manuscripts, says that Jesus screamed out in agony and then gave up the ghost or expired and died. And because of that missing verse that Fenton provides, the entire sequence of events on the stake are different than they appear in the Gospels, where it appears that he was already dead when the spear was thrust in his side. The spear thrust is what eventually, finally, killed him. So, as I began to see a sharper focus as a result of a couple of sermons I've delivered recently in a campaign, I had to go back and take a little bit of issue with what I used to preach in trying to emulate, as best I could, my father's statement, why haven't you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? He insisted, and I insisted for decades, it is the message of the government of God, of the kingdom of God, which is the government of God, the ruling, governing family of God, into which we must be born. Now, how's that for a microcosm of the gospel you've heard for decades? I think my father was largely assuming that all of the scriptures involving Christ's birth, the angelic bliss at the time of the Annunciation to Mary and to Elizabeth, the leaping of the babes in the womb at the first meeting of those cousins when John the Baptist and Jesus Christ were yet unborn, those great events that are in the first few chapters of the Synoptics and the Gospel of John, which portray the joy and the delirium and the ecstatic joy and happiness among angels in heaven above at the time unto this day is born unto us a Savior. Well, that's been handled at Christmas time. I mean, that belongs to the Protestants. Those are their scriptures. We must avoid those, and we must go on and talk about government and rule and the law, and the only way you're going to be in the kingdom of God is to submit to government and to learn how to be governed before you can rule and govern. And I think through those years, we began to become what I had described as the professional guide who wanders through a series of scriptures that he knows very well, but like a guide in the thicket of Africa, if he gets off the marked trail with which he is familiar and wanders afoot in the bush, he soon becomes lost. And that many Protestant pastors know how to preach to you, almost rippling them off their tongue, an unending stream of proof texts to prove their particular ideas and attitudes about the Bible. But if you simply let the Bible fall open to a particular scripture with which they're unfamiliar, they're as lost as the guide who has wandered off the path in the thicket in the jungle. I think to some extent we became a little bit guilty of the very thing we were describing that others were doing. I want to take us back to some of those scriptures today that we have been avoiding. Matthew, the third chapter. We are to do the work of God. We know that. We know the prophecies of Jesus Christ that the gospel of the kingdom of God shall be preached in all the world as a witness, and then shall the end come. We also know the prophecies in Malachi, the third chapter and the fourth, that God would send His messenger before His face to prepare the way of the Lord, Malachi 3, and the last verses of Malachi 4, that Elijah the prophet would come to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children of the children of the fathers. And you ought to read the article on the work of Elijah so that you understand that has nothing to do with the restoration of the family uh, unit. But it has to do with the fathers who are the fathers in God's word of ancient Israel and the children of Israel, the only children mentioned as children, children, children over and over and over again in the Bible. 
Well, we know that was partially a prophecy of John the Baptist, and yet we feel that there is to be an end-time repetition of the work of John the Baptist. Now, we're not performing the work of Christ. Let us not begin to assume or to arrogate to ourselves that we are performing the work of Christ. Christ performed a full work. When he had finished it, it was utterly sufficient. It lacked nothing. We are performing, in this latter-day time, a work not unlike that of John the Baptist, except this time it is to prepare the way before the second coming of Christ and not to prepare the way before his first coming. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Matthew, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent! Now, all of you should know how to take your pulpits, or to take your pen or typewriter or word processor in hand, and to wade through dozens of scriptures, Acts 2.38, Acts 5.32, the sixth chapter of Romans about baptism and the type of death, burial, and resurrection of the old self, to walk in newness of life, to go back to the book of Job, and to explain what is repentance. Then, what do you repent of? Sin. And what is sin? Everybody in this room knows that it's found in 1 John 3, 4. And there are pastors by the thousands in this nation that do not know that and couldn't tell their, their pastor it's that if they were asked the question on the spot. Pastor, can you give me one example of one place in the Bible where it tells me in a little microcosm so I can understand it, what is sin? They can't do it, but you can. Sin is the transgression of the law. What law? Scriptures come to mind about the Ten Commandments of God. The statement, repent, is a vast and enormous statement that requires an understanding of a monumental amount about the Bible, about human nature, about Satan the devil and God in heaven above, about your environment that is influenced by Satan the devil, and what it means to repent and how that process comes along. John the Baptist, in short, what I'm saying, you're reading here a little synopsis from like a newspaper reporter named Matt, Matthew. One of my kids is named Matthew. And he wrote to try to characterize what was really a vast ministry that rocked the world, the known world, in which Christ was growing as a young man during that day. The ministry of John the Baptist was as much a public ministry in Judea as was the ministry of Billy Sunday and the ministry today and in the 50s of Billy Graham. He was that well known. Thousands came out to hear him, including the leadership of the country. What I'm saying is that John the Baptist did not suddenly come around the corner of a building and look at a group of people and say, Repent! No, repent was what he led up to at the end of his message when he told them what they had to repent of and why they had to repent and all about how to do it and then what would happen next and we can prove that as we go along. He didn't simply walk up like some religious fanatic in an old uh, moth-eaten lion skin or maybe in this case a camel's hair coat and munch another grasshopper's head off and, and take a little sip of honey and say, repent! Because a lot of people have the idea that John the Baptist was kind of a desert freak that was a weirdo with regard to religion. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that's Matthew's synopsis. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The same John had his raiment of camel's hair, a very expensive coat, by the way, if you owned one, and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem, 
Now, that's talking about a large segment of the population, certainly not just a few jailbirds or a few ne'er-do-wells or a few of the town winos or bums or drunken people that didn't have a job, but people of, of stature, people of some note. And all Judea, that was the Romish province around Jerusalem, and all the region round about Jordan, the whole Jordan Valley, from the southern reaches of the Sea of Galilee down to Jericho and the northern part of the Dead Sea. And were baptized of him. So now you're dealing with a ministry which spans many, many months and perhaps even some few years in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to his baptism, he said, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I made the comment before that I have never yet had an opportunity because I've never yet had uh, 16 pastors of every leading church in Tyler walk into our services to see a bunch of people come in just as I'm preaching to a group of people here in some public lecture and talking about repentance and salvation and baptism and to see them walk in in great dignity with their clerical robes and to look out over the heads of the congregation and to say, you generation of snakes, look in the Bullinger's Companion Bible. It says, brood of snakes. Who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Strong words. John was not the most likable person in the world, I take it. Uh, his message to people was a little bit caustic, at least from their point of view. Bring forth, therefore, fruits fitting for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, look at the national pride, look at the racial and ethnic pride, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that Abraham, that God is able to raise up stones and uh, make them children unto Abraham. But also now the axe is laid under the root of the trees. Therefore every tree that brings forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. But he that comes after me is mightier than I, and I'm not worthy to even begin to commence to get ready to do task work like the lady who would meet him at the foyer to unlatch his shoe to wash his feet coming in from the dusty road. I can't even unlatch his shoes, let alone take off the sandal and wash his feet like a house girl would do. Let's notice John's attitude as we go along. Something very profound we're coming to. Was he saying that for form? Was he saying that to be, quote, humble because he majored in humble in the S&E's university? Or uh, did he mean it? I think he meant it. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What an incredible travesty for people to stand in a pulpit and say that he's going to baptize you with fire and make fire a human emotion. It's obvious, we all know, when he goes on to say his fan is in his hand, he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, the only place in the Bible where I'm mentioned. But he will, and I'm just kidding, of course, <clears throat> but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. I'm glad my father didn't name me Chaff. Uh, I, I, that, would be, that would be a very terrible name. But anyway, garner does mean to gather, and that's the one place where I can take comfort and see that my name is in the Bible. Now, obviously, then, the baptism with fire is something nobody ever wants, and we know how to explain that, and it's in the Bible very clear, and there are plenty of proofs about it, that it has to do with a warning of those who do not repent of, eventually, Gehenna fire. Let's turn to John, the first chapter now, and look at the parallel account over here in John's account. John, bear witness of him, he said, beginning in verse 15, cried, saying, This is he of whom I spake. He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And a little later on, it said in verse 19, this is the record of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? 
Fantastic answer. I love this part. Because I have dealt with so many religious fanatics and so many people who aspire to be religious leaders, who are religious hobbyists and who want some lofty position in a church or a religion, that this is an astounding example. Here's John the Baptist being asked by a delegation of the very leaders of the Sanhedrin, the leaders of his nation, almost like, say, a congressional committee has come to ask John, what are you doing? Who are you? What are your credentials? And here is John's protestation. And if you will look into Bullinger again or some of the commentaries, you will see this expression, verse 20, he confessed and denied not shows that he really was urgent and vehement about it. He really got serious. He confessed and denied not, but confessed. And you will see that Greek statement is for double emphasis. It's why it's repeated there. I am not the Christ. Now, if he'd have been some of the folks I've met, he'd have got his head all swelled up so, so big that he couldn't have got a size nine and three quarters hat around it. And when they acted like they kind of thought he might be the Christ, he just said, I am your leader, follow me! And off he'd go running into the hinterlands, and they'd all be trampling along following after him. But he denied and said, I am not the Christ. They said, well, what are you then, Elijah? Now, there might have been a safer category for him to achieve. But he didn't say that he was Elijah. He said, no, I am not. Now, they were trying to make him out to be Elijah. He didn't go along with it. I'm not. He didn't need to be Elijah in the flesh resurrected. He could have been just the atypical Elijah. He could have been the latter-day type of Elijah. Now, wait a minute. Here's a contradiction in Scripture. Christ said he was. Christ said, if you will receive it, this is Elias which was to come. God in heaven knew that he was Elijah. What about the real Elijah who came before Jesus Christ? Did he ever admit it? Did he even entertain it? Did he think it? Did someone else write it in some smelly, musty old religious publication and avow that he was Elijah and kind of tag him with a label that dogged him all the way through his life so everybody goes, he's Elijah. I mean, was it even a label that was attached to the man? Absolutely not. He denied it. He didn't believe it. He didn't know it. He said, I'm not Elijah. Are you that prophet? Go back and look in the 18th chapter of Deuteronomy, verse 18 or so. And he answered, no, he's not the prophet who was to come. They said unto him, well, who are you that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What do you say about yourself? Look at the humility here. He almost disembodied himself. He was not going to take any dimension. He totally submerged himself into the message and said, it's the message that counts. He said, I'm a voice. I'm just the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And then, of course, they demanded to know why he was baptizing and so on. Now notice something further in Luke, the third chapter. Back in Luke, the third chapter, beginning in verse 1, and I'll just skim through a portion of this to come to part of the ministry of John the Baptist that is quite instructive. The third chapter of Luke, beginning in verse 1. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, and Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee. It mentions Philip and, of course, Lysanias and their areas. Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests, and John the Baptist came preaching the baptism of repentance, verse 3, for the remission of sins. And he was the voice, verse 4, of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Again, that is taken from the book of Isaiah, 
and by the way, the 40th chapter and thereafter, for those of you who are studious enough to want to worry about whether or not the higher critics are correct who claim there was a second Isaiah, the New Testament scriptures avow that from the 40th chapter and after, it was the real Isaiah who said these words. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. The crooked shall be made straight, and that, of course, is cited from Isaiah 43 to 5. And the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And then he said to the multitude, we've read that, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And I won't repeat all of that. Now finally, at the end of a very effective sermon, the people, verse 10, asked him, What shall we do then? Exactly like on the day of Pentecost, Peter is there, men and brethren, what shall we do? He said, He that has two coats, let him give to him that has none. You can only wear one at a time. I've always said you can only drive one car at a time. You can only eat one steak at a time. You can only wear one coat at a time. What he's saying is if you're wealthy and you have double what you need, then give to the poor. He that has two coats, let him impart to him that has none. He that has meat, in other words, far more food than he can eat, let him do likewise. Then came the publicans to be baptized and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? Now these were the good publicans. These were the farm taxers, they're called. The Greek word means farm taxers. They were the takers of taxation from the land. And therefore, they were a part of the Romish system of paying tribute to Rome and collecting all of the goods and so on from the people. And they had opportunity, as does any CPA or lawyer who is knowledgeable in handling financial affairs or financial planners and other people like that, including bank tellers on down, there was an opportunity to have themselves, you know, their elbows all the way up to their elbows in the till. So he said, exact no more than that which is appointed you. He didn't tell him get out of that profession. Verse 14, soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, and what shall we do? And he said, do violence to no man, because they could easily do so. Most of them were illiterate, brutish, conscripts from uh, Cappadocia, Bithynia, from Carthage, from northern Africa, from all over the Roman Empire, didn't know how to read or write, uh, a multicolored uh, sort of a... A hodgepodge of very brutish men who were conscripted into the Roman legions. Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages, because they too could extort from people. And as the people were in expectation, all people mused in their hearts of John, whether he were Christ or not. John answered, saying, I baptize you with water, but one mightier than I comes, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, in verse 18 it said, And many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. We have here a tiny little synopsis of probably hundreds and hundreds of sermons of maybe hours duration, which had to be some of the most effective preaching that has ever been delivered because of its results. Delivered in, I remind you, the ears of many young men, including a couple from the area of Galilee named Andrew, and another one named John, who was the son of Zebedee. Andrew was a brother of Peter and a disciple of John the Baptist. Many of John the Baptist's disciples became Jesus' disciples and numbered among the 120. The results of John the Baptist's preaching were enormous. He had, in fact, up and down the length and breadth of his land during that day, prepared the way for Jesus Christ. And the way was prepared 
And John was used to prepare some of the apostles. They heard John preach before they heard Jesus teach. And they became apostles later on. So John was very successful. When we read only a little microcosm of what he preached and what he said, we've got to imagine a very powerful preacher, a ringing voice, and then we've got to think what were the issues that he brought to their mind? What caused them to repent? Here's a very good example of it in the next verse. But Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved by him for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all, meaning added this evil to all the other evil, that he shut up John in prison. John preached about Herod's sins. So John knew about the leadership. And he knew what was happening, and he was preaching to the people, and by the tens of thousands they heard him and they believed him, and Herod couldn't stand it. Herod was as guilty as sin. And John pointed it out and said, He is a sinner, and he shall not have this woman, that is an adulterous union, and he condemned sin wherever he found it. It didn't matter whether it was the littlest human being, a goat herd out there in the desert, or whether it was the guy sitting on a sumptuous throne. If he was a sinner, John said to him, you are a sinner. Now, they prepared a banquet one time, and John was involved. The only banquet he ever went to. The way I read it in my Bible. Trouble is, the only banquet John ever went to, only his head showed up. Now, John, as a microcosm of the work of God in this day and era, began, grew, became enormously important, came to the attention of the leadership, began to cry aloud, Spare not, and show my people their sins, and preach repentance unto salvation, had a successful ministry, and then was jailed for his pains and murdered. If I read my Bible correctly, the tenth chapter of the book of Matthew says that before you shall have gone over all the cities of Israel, the Son of Man shall be come. And it correctly says, you shall be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And let's bear that in mind as we go along. Now Christ came along and indicted the religious leaders. And we know about Christ's ministry and how he fulfilled his work, died for the sins of the world, said, I will build my church and did build it by sending the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And I want to turn to that chapter in the second chapter of the book of Acts. At the end of this very marvelous explanation of what was happening on the day of Pentecost, Peter, standing up with the eleven, verse 14, lifted up his voice and said, You men of Judea, listen to me. These men are not drunk, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass, says the Eternal, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Male chauvinists, ministers of the WCG, pay attention. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Can a lady be a prophet in the New Testament era? Now, I'm not going to say that everybody that has a, a wild dream is a prophetess. But at least Peter knew that this was yet to be repeated in the latter day in which we live. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens... I will pour out my spirit. Any church that makes its women chattel, second-class citizens, 
puts its women down is absolutely defiant of the Word of God. It says here the Holy Spirit is equally available and that the gifts and the talents and the benefits are equally available to men and handmaidens alike. And they, both of them, shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vaporous smoke. And he goes on through it all. But notice in verse 21, it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I wonder, has the church forgotten those words? Now, I'm going to try not to slip off balance, which is a knife's edge, into an opposite extreme. For decades, the church edged closer and closer until it finally slipped off that balance into an opposite extreme of preaching a message about the kingdom of God, which is a part of the gospel, about the government of God, which is a part of the gospel, about the tribulation. And if you read Matthew 24 and read all that comes up to verse 14, wars and rumors of wars, false Christs and false prophets, droughts, pestilence, and famine, the martyrdom of saints, and this gospel shall be preached. It's part of the gospel. I know it and you know it. Ezekiel 36 is part of the gospel. Ezekiel 5 is part of the gospel. The whole book of Isaiah, of Zechariah, Zephaniah, of the restoration in the land is a part of the gospel. The whole Bible is a part of the gospel, except genealogies and perhaps histories. Even many of the Psalms contain elements of the gospel. And I know that and you know it. So I don't want to go to the opposite extreme. But can you hear in this sermon at this occasion in this location, a great statement about the family of God, the spirit in man, the government of God, that God is reproducing after his own kind, and many other things that are perhaps for very fully developed, mature Christian people who have been converted for a long time. Should that message go to the world? God is recreating himself after his own kind, the spirit in man, and on and on. Here were the world. Here was the world, people in the world. Here's what Peter preached. You men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves know. And he goes through the whole thing, being delivered by the determinate counsel you have taken with wicked hands and crucified and slain. Verse 24, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death. Then he says, dealing with David, because many of the people were Pharisees, they believed in the spiritual departure after this life to heaven. He had to combat that and say, David is not in heaven. In verse 29, and again brought back the fact that David as a prophet talked about Christ. Verse 31, he seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ. That his soul, suke, his life, his being, was not left in hell, meaning Hades in this case, the grave. Neither did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Verse 34, David is not in the heavens. Verse 36 and 7, I want you to know assuredly, God has made that same Jesus whom you killed, you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, the product of his sermon was their almost multilateral, spontaneous question when they said to Peter to the apostles, what shall we do? Where do we go? How do we solve this problem? Here we are, absolutely abhorrent. We are blood guilty. We, we don't know which rock to crawl under. 
We're scared to death. What is God going to do to us? Is He going to squash us like a bug or, or burn us alive like those captains at the foot of the mountain trying to tell Elijah that Ahab wanted to see him? I mean, these were scared, frightened people. That great phenomenon of blazing crowns that settle on the heads of the speakers, which will get you attention every time, up before all those people who one by one began to talk about their life with Christ and the fact they'd seen Him dead, seen Him die, seen Him back, handled Him, put their hand inside the wound. He is alive. He has risen again. was some of the most powerful preaching, I'm sure, that the world has ever heard. And so he said, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the Holy Spirit. Let's go on. Let's ask, what was the product? But let me go back and remind you once again of the concept that became very deeply entrenched of a complete shedding of responsibility on the part of the evangelists preaching the gospel of the kingdom. It was orchestrated over and over again that it is not our responsibility whether or not anyone is converted. And there was a convenient catch clause we like to use. None can come unto the Father under the Son, I'm sorry, except the Spirit of the Father draw him. In John, I think about 8.44, somewhere in there, or maybe 6.44. None can come. So therefore, we had the idea, and it was our defense, that unless God is calling them, there's nothing we can do about it. What in the world kind of a stupid idea was that? Unless God is calling them. Who are you? What is inside of you? Why ask the question, here I am. I wonder what God up there is doing vis-a-vis -vis these people. Hey, God has called me. I'm here. There's those people. Therefore, God is calling them. He's got to be calling them right then and there because God's servant's there in front of them. And so God's servant backs away and says, Now, if God's not calling them, there's nothing I can do about it. I just preach them the gospel, just toss it out there at their feet and say, It's your responsibility. Now, if you want to pick it up, you pick it up. But I am absolved of all guilt and responsibility. You see what I'm saying? That is one of the dumbest ideas I've ever heard in my life. To take that scripture. None can come to the Father except the Son, rather, except the Spirit of the Father draw him. The Spirit of the Father in that evangelist is drawing those people. Notice what Peter said in this preaching. It said Verse 40, he said, With many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this rotten world, this untoward generation. His message was, Get out of it. Save yourselves. You husbands, quit cheating on your wives. Wives, quit cheating on your husbands. You tax collectors, quit stealing from the people. You, you liars and cheats and hypocrites, quit lying and cheating and being double-minded and two-faced. He is saying, quit it, stop it, you're killing yourselves. You're headed toward an absolute abyss of destruction. He's pointing out individual, personal, and collective and national sins and saying, save yourselves. So I submit that the message of Peter and the message of the apostles was a message that had a goal. It had a product at the end of it. It was not one devoid of responsibility. It had a great deal of responsibility. It would fail if no one listened, if no one was affected, if no one heard and was moved, if there was no result. Now, I read in the Bible very clearly that the Apostle Paul assayed to go into Bithynia. 
and the Holy Spirit of God prevented him. And instead, in a vision, he saw a young man from Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. That's the responsibility of God, is to where he sends his apostle or his evangelist. But once the evangelist is there, for him to say, I'm not sure God is calling these people, is just unthinkable. Of course God is calling them, because you're there, and Christ in you is there to call them. That's what you're doing there. That's why you draw breath. I'll tell you, there are concepts we had so wrong in the past couple of decades that every time I look at some of them, it's hard to believe. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. The day we ever have an evangelistic campaign with those kind of results, I think we'll say to ourselves, I think we've made a new beginning. We really are at last doing what God expects us to do. Now, there are many scriptures I could read in Acts the second, third, and fourth chapter. Let's go to fourth chapter, verse 2, quickly and just skim along. There are many of them here we could deal with. Here the Pharisees and Sadducees, verse 2, were grieved that they, the apostles, taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Jailed them. You know, then the prayer. And when they were asked in verse 7, by what authority or in what name have you done this, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him, does this man stand here before you whole. And then he talked about salvation. And he said in verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name. And that name is not Allah. And it is not some other name. There is only one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Peter talked about being saved, about salvation. This was not a message about being governed. Now, I understand, and I know that, you know, you're thinking, well... Ted, by the way, this was Israel, of course. I mean, they understood the Sabbath, the annual holy days, the law. They had all of that, that our Protestant world is utterly devoid of understanding. So we have our work cut out for us because we're not preaching in a society that is completely cognizant of the Mosaic codes and understands the Torah, as many of those people did. I understand that, but still I insist their message was a message of salvation and a message that had to be preached in Jesus Christ's name. Let's go along a little more. There are many of them in Acts 4, 17 and 18, for example. He says, Let us straightly threaten them, these are the delegation of the priests and the council, that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. That was what they hated. That was what they could not stand. Every time they heard his name, it made them remind, it reminded them that they were guilty of his life, that he killed him, they put him to death. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Now, they could have been accepted by the Jews if they'd have said, well, yes, yes, sir, we will do that. Is it okay if we just refer to him from now on as Messiah? Well, yeah, but not that man. See, when they said Jesus, they're talking about a human being they'd killed. Now, that one individual, don't talk about him. If you want to go out and talk about the Messiah, which is to come, well, we talk about that all the time anyway. Or if you want to talk about a strong hand from someplace, that's fine too. But don't talk about that one individual that we killed the other day because we won't want to hear about him anymore. We know that he was a bad man. They didn't know anything of the kind. They suspected he might be the Son of God, but we don't want to hear about him anymore. They were not willing to package the gospel. 
They weren't willing to make it palatable to the leadership. They were not willing to see the work grow and to have full course and to be accepted by the leadership of that country by changing and altering the form of the message. They just doggedly said, now you, you consider your own self, verse 19, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than unto God. You'll have to be the judge of that. We can't help it. We can only tell you two things, both what we saw with our own eyes and what we heard. Now what they saw was the messenger, and what they heard was the message. And they were going to portray and to go on and to tell both parts of that, including all that they saw. Acts 5.30 and 31, quickly, he said, Him has God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are his witnesses of these things. The fact that he was, in verse 29 and 30, slain and hung on a tree, and then resurrected and exalted. They were witnesses of what? Of those things. So also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to them that obey Him. Well, they witnessed about what they saw, and they did it in the name of Jesus Christ. Well, I'll skip along with some of these scriptures in the book of Acts and go all the way to the end of the book. There are many, many other references that are along the same line. Let's go to the 28th chapter and look at verse 23. And when they had appointed him a day, Paul is now under house arrest. It's during the imprisonment in Rome, and he is awaiting the day of his meeting with Nero. There came many to him to his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God. All right, now we come down to the message that my father portrayed and expounded and wrote interminably about for decades of his life, and the message that I emulated and went along and began to preach exactly as he preached it as best I knew how for all of those same decades. He testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets, all day long, from morning till evening, both the kingdom of God and those things concerning Jesus. Verse 30, Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. Now back to one example that is very profound in the 8th chapter of the book of Acts that I've mentioned recently, you may or may not have heard on a tape or two, and you're very well aware of the entire situation involving the Ethiopian eunuch, so I'll just get some of the real poignant points out of it. Philip was sent down to Gaza to meet him, he was a eunuch of great authority. He was like the Secretary of the Treasury. He had some brand new scrolls, obviously very expensive, of brass or a precious metal and very long, which would be very laboriously copied, as you know, and therefore would represent something of great wealth, of great worth, of great cost. Probably the fact that he was Candace treasurer and that she herself, uh, knowing what he would have been saying and telling her, because it says here that he had come to Jerusalem to worship, so therefore, he was a proselyte, though a black man. He worshipped the true God, Yahweh, the God of Moses, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he came to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage, probably at the Feast of Tabernacles after that day of Pentecost, and bought this very precious, important scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Now, he couldn't wait to get all the way home. He was so excited, he wanted to unroll it and read a little bit of it. 
So he's reading it. And the Spirit told Philip to go near. And he heard him reading aloud out of Isaiah, verse 30. And he said, do you understand what you read? Now notice how God has prepared the man's mind. Most people would rise up very haughtily and say, how dare you interrupt me and who are you and so on. But no, the Holy Spirit of God was at work here. And he said, how can I except some man should guide me? And he asked Philip to get up and sit down with him. And the place that he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearers, so opened he not his mouth. Isaiah 53, 7. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And if you want a little study in transliteration as, as, as opposed to simple expounding the Scriptures, just go back to Isaiah 53, 7 and read word for word. Compare the new with the old. Here, there was a correct, a totally correct interpretation of the verses, but it is not a transliteration of word by word. But the sense is absolutely accurate. The eunuch said, Who is this speaking about, the prophet or some other man? And Philip opened his mouth and began, not Genesis 1 or John 1 or somewhere else around by the North Pole, but at that same scripture, and preached unto him. Are you ready for this? You've already seen it, so you know what's in the Bible. Preached unto him. Jesus. The central focal point of the gospel that was preached by every one of those men in the first century was Jesus. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Not the Jesus of this world. The real Jesus. The one who was Lord of the Sabbath day and who wrote the Ten Commandments with his own hands. Now some of the texts claim that verse 37 is not there. Some say it was there. I'm not sure either way. But it said that as they came to certain water, the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Well, I could tell you, and maybe it would be rancorous, and I shouldn't go into it, about a letter that I have on my desk today. But other people who have written to me, who have actually been delayed and put off literally for years, not just months, but in one case I know of five long years. How many times does some supplicant have to knock on the door to the organization that is supposed to represent the one who said, Come unto me, ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And said, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. How many times has a smoker got to come and say, I need to be baptized? How many times does a person with deep-seated problems got to come and say, I need to be baptized? To be told, go away from here and solve your problem and then come back, and when you're good enough, I will baptize you. Can you imagine taking your child with a compound fracture to the emergency entry of the hospital, and the doctor looking at the fracture and say, when you get the fracture set, and that unsightly mess cleaned up, and the blood, everything out of the way, and the bandage back, come on back and I'll talk to you about the injury. Can you imagine an, an emergency ward in a hospital turning away an injured victim of an automobile accident? Then why does the church of God turn away the people that need the church the most? Because the minister doesn't want problems. We heard a lot of problems this morning. we got problems in the ministry. We will never have a time when there won't be problems. You better believe it. I know it. I'm talking from 31 years of observation and 56 years of experience. Well, first year I can't count. Forgot that one button. <laughs> anyway, there will never be a time when we don't have problems. I'll tell you, smokers, people with habits, smoking, and I tell you, I'm just trying to be polite because there are ladies present. I'm just talking about some little old picky habit that nobody really takes issue with. 
If somebody next to you has got stained thumbnails, welcome him. He's a, he's a child of God, made in the image of God, and the poor guy is probably going to die of cancer, missing part of his lung someday. And you might be called to the hospital, send him flowers, and sit there and pat his hand and wish that brother old Joe Jones or whoever he is is dying. Or weren't dying, rather. And, uh, but there's no reason to keep him out of church. That's where Alcoholics Anonymous need Alcoholics Anonymous. They don't need to be told, get out of here to cure your alcoholism. That's the place they're coming to get the buttressing and the support and the understanding that they need to continue to stay dry, to get dry and stay that way. I, I tell you, their loss is our gain. Just let them keep kicking them out, I guess, except I'm afraid if some of them get so hurt, they just don't even know where to look and they don't find us. And that's the tragedy. But that's their responsibility, not mine. He said, what hinders me to be baptized? Well, I'll tell you, 42 lessons at a correspondence course didn't hinder him. And five years at a plain truth didn't hinder him. And knowing about the booklet or the autobiography or divorce and remarriage didn't hinder him. I don't hear Philip asking him a single question about how many wives he had, and I'm not sure whether or not Ethiopians practice polygamy. All I know is the man said, I've got to be saved, I understand this, and I want to be baptized. And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. Now, Philip probably should have sat him down with a whole group of ministers and a board and, and just, you know, got a lie detector and found out if the guy was lying to him or not. But he didn't. He said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, where's the responsibility? On Philip? Absolutely not. It's on the eunuch. He's coming to God. Philip is an agent. Now we can get to talking about whose responsibility it is. If you baptize someone who is not sincere, it's not your fault. You're just there to help and to serve and to baptize. And if they fall away later, it doesn't stain your garment. It doesn't, you know, brown the edge of your parchment. It doesn't take away the dots and the crossing of the T from your ministerial credentials. That's their responsibility. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. They both went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, when they were come out of the water, it doesn't say that Philip said, Now, we don't want you meeting without a minister. Or when you go down there, I don't want you starting any Bible studies because until we can send somebody all the way down there to Addis Ababa or down there somewhere to Ethiopia, Eritrea, uh, you are not to do anything until you get in contact with some of us from the true church. And we have no work in Ethiopia right now today. But eventually, if you keep in touch with us, write to me once a month, why, we'll get back to you. But instead it just said the Spirit caught him away, and it said the eunuch went on his way rejoicing, and Philip was found at Azotus. Oh, it also says the eunuch saw him no more. And I think that the Coptic Church of Ethiopia is the result of that encounter back very shortly, within probably a few months after the resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, I believe that the church in these last, perhaps, couple of decades, certainly for the last 15 years, has been preaching only a part of the gospel. I sincerely have come to believe that. And I believe that they have been irresponsibly, and I think for reasons of personal aggrandizement, for power and control, for persons such as avarice and money, have wanted to maintain a certain status, a certain trajectory. They have wanted the aplomb and the approval of human leaders, including some of the world's most bloodthirsty dictators. I do not seek the aplomb of men, he's now dead, such as Jomo Kenyatta. If I'd ever had a chance to see the man, I'd ask him about the Mau Mau rights and how many people he killed 
and Robert Ruark's book, and how the how he was hunted for years because of the settlers he was terrorizing. Now we can say that the man was a freedom fighter. If we wish to say the people who were mowing down the civilians at Rome and Vienna's airport uh, were freedom fighters, I suppose we could argue that. In my own view, terrorists are terrorists, and they are rotten, wretched murderers who murder innocent victims, and they never change anything. All of these decades of terrorism have not moved the United States to move upon Israel to separate out the West Bank and give it back to the Palestinians, and they probably never will. But I think there should be a different message to dictators of this world. President Reagan goes down and meets with Suharto, and he's walking on crushed eggs and ground glass. He's got to be very, very careful, because the politest way to say it is the, quote, human rights record of Suharto is poor. What that means is there are millions, not millions, but thousands of hapless wretches that look like sticks and bones like refugees from Auschwitz rotting away in some of those prisons down there, that people are killed out of hand, that people are absolutely butchered by assassin squads, that there are no civil liberties, that there's no freedom of the press, no freedom of the expression of opinion, and that you cannot have a contrary opinion to that which is a one-party governmental system. Now, you all know by now the story about Imelda's shoes and black braziers. Uh, you know that no nation on the face of the earth wants that couple. He just offered a half billion dollars to Costa Rica to take him in. And he was a dictator, and one of the most gluttonous, I mean, that is one of the most embarrassing stories of grotesque, toadish gluttony I've ever heard in my life. Uh, how many millions does it take to please some people? Apparently, until you've got literally billions and billions. I mean, here's a woman that was so insecure because the poor thing had a poverty-stricken background. It just makes me weep when I think about it, that you had to have a room almost as big as this called a closet filled with shoes. And most of them still stuffed with paper with a price tag on them, from Gucci. She'd walk into a bookstore in New York City and say, give me every other one of those and I'll take the whole shelf over here and box up the rest of them because they look pretty. She never cracked a book and read a quarter of the lineage of one of them, but we're talking about leather-brown, gold-gilt-edged classics that cost millions of dollars. Now, let me tell you that some of your tithe money went to, went to buy some of those shoes and brassieres. Because if you're going to go to these people overseas and pass along a check in an envelope for $300,000 for somebody to tell hill farmers in Thailand to go to raisin carrots instead of marijuana when they knew that they'll just go ahead and raise the marijuana anyway, but in the meantime, we'll farm a little plot of carrots and show it to the fellow when he comes by next year. Rondart was down there and some other people have been to look into all this that we were doing. And how in the world a church organization came to swallow the idea that handing out hundreds of thousands and eventually millions of dollars of the blood, sweat, and tears of the laboring class of God's people to dictators is just beyond me. I just have no way to wrap my mind around that. I don't understand it. I don't understand how they sat still for it. I don't understand how it was done. I don't understand how it could have continued. But it did, and it continues to this day. What an incredible waste it is. Now, why would the new understanding God is giving His church, and I use that term advisedly, not this church or a church, but His church, is it that we have, in comparison to other organizations, a very slight outreach program? Because, as I said this morning in part, 
I am not sure at all that the truth and the new profound concepts that are coming to this church would have come to us in that other configuration. I think we would have been so blinded and so locked in by power and politics and money and commitments to the world and a certain status that we were required to maintain and people who had certain threats or certain uh, unnamed threats of action that we, we didn't even know what they were talking about but they would walk around sort of in a threatening mode and I could tell you who I'm talking about uh, that seemed to uh, be some kind of a, of a threat to the corporate structure or the leadership or to the finances or whatever that I'm not sure but that there would have been so many leech-like appendages just hanging on to the body draining it of its strength of its virility and of its determination to go before the world literally without fear or without favor and to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ not omitting his name or his person and calling upon people to repent of sin I'm just not sure the work would ever have been done now I am beginning to come to believe something it sounds so astounding that you'll probably think I am crazy because you've heard it for 20 or 30 years because it was one of the reasons that you were brought into the church in the first place it had to do with doing a work it had to do with the concept that the one greatest way by which God is intervening in this world today is by sending his messengers to the world as John the Baptist came before the first coming of Jesus Christ to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That whole concept was wrapped up in the thought that we are, quite literally, in Protestant America with the name of Jesus Christ on everybody from a guy who just shanked a golf shot to the president in his private quarters in the Oval Office. A nation who knows the name of Jesus and has a bumper sticker that says, if you love Jesus, honk, that we have the audacity to say they have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ but now wait a minute I don't mean that the way my dad meant it I mean that my father and I back during those years were only preaching half of it and we were leaving out something how many times have I been to evangelistic campaigns in cities all over this country and in other cities where I have given what other people told me was a marvelous message and I have rippled off all of these terrible problems of the diminution of strategic resources and minerals and global pollution and nuclear proliferation and the potential of a nuclear bomb war and the abomination of desolation and the Middle East and all the politics and all the rest of it. And by the time I end my sermon, they have been inspired, aroused, challenged, upset, entertained. But then it was nice having you here, and uh, we hope someday you will come back. Thank you all for attending. It's very nice. We have our cup of coffee, and we visit, and we shake hands, and Grinder Ted Armstrong disappears down the road to Tyler, and the people all go home. And, and we had a happening, but nothing happened. You know, we had a happening. It was enjoyable, but nothing happened. Now, we made a little beginning alteration in this in the last few campaigns. We began asking the local pastor to stand up and introduce himself and to say, by the way, we meet every Saturday. 
in this building or over here at this address, and we've got slips with my address or my card on it, my telephone number, and we would like you to have, have you people come by and visit with us, or we'd like to have you look in on our services, or if you have any question involving your spiritual condition or, or whatever, well, give me a call. Just a real kind of a, a, a little kind of a halfway delicate, uh, reticent invitation that maybe you'd like to get interested and kind of look in over our shoulder and see what this church is all about. That's about all we've done. Now, with that, we've had a certain amount of results. We've had some people begin attending church wherever I've gone recently, in Chicago and Salina and Houston, and I hope we've had some start down there. I'm uh, good. I see the gentleman who was down there, Tom, was down there. Some have begun to attend as a result. But I don't think that is enough. I do not think the message is pointed enough, because, you see, every time I preach, I am going to be preaching to audiences who will be composed of people who in the last week have committed adultery, have perhaps performed evil acts I cannot put a name to in this company, whose minds are filled with every kind of sin, who have given in to every kind of horrible human appetite, who have cherished hatreds of decades' duration, who have perhaps a criminal record, or should have in some cases, and don't. But I'm telling you, I know the, gra the, the, the average makeup of anybody, of we human beings, we poor suffering human beings, numbering 100 of us, would make the angels blush. And I think it's about time the servants of God began to say so and began to get underneath the heart and the mind of some of those people sitting there in that condition like so many maggots crawling on their flesh and to say, you are in a dangerous, horrible condition, you need to repent. And unless you do, and this is your greatest opportunity, you may as well take advantage of it, you're going to go to Gehenna fire and make it very clear. And I think the statement now is the day of salvation, the immediacy of it, the moment of a person's calling, I mean, the Ethiopian eunuch had an opportunity, and he cheerfully embraced that opportunity. He didn't, it wasn't denied him by the minister, and it was not denied him by Almighty God. It was an appropriate moment for his conversion. And I think we've got to begin to do that. I watched my own television program this morning, and I saw the first beginning of that very type of a message coming back at me that I made last Tuesday down at Channel 7. And I think you're going to see a great deal more of it. I'd like you to turn in conclusion to Romans, the first chapter, something with which we are all very familiar. Romans, the first chapter, and in verse 16. The Apostle Paul is writing, and he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, meaning all Gentiles. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. He goes on to talk about those who profess themselves to be wise, who change the truth of God into a lie, or actually exchanged it for a lie, verse 25. Verse 26, if anything describes this world, look at the succeeding verses. For this cause God gave them up to vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. 
I had the hideous experience of seeing on my television set yesterday morning on CNN News of the breaking of a huge male prostitution ring in London, England, where little waifs, 13, 14, hit the streets around Piccadilly and are preyed upon by filthy, corrupt perverts who introduce them into a life of homosexuality and make boy prostitutes out of them and how they can virtually never escape it. And it happens in our country. I once read an article about Los Angeles that there are actually thousands of such little kids in an area somewhere in Hollywood that was called Chicken Alley or whatever it was, I forget, where old businessmen and even politicians would drive their Cadillacs and Mercedes and pick up little boys on the street. It happens in cities all over the United States of America. Now, I'd like to ask why should it remain for Billy Graham and Jerry Falwell and James Roberson and other people to bear down on homosexuality and abortion and crime of every sort and the Church of God to remain silent? Does that make any sense to you whatsoever? If we are to claim to be out in the forefront preaching a warning and a witness, then we've also got to preach the sins that are being committed in this nation and the desperate emergency in which our country finds itself spiritually, morally, socially, economically, even militarily in the world today. Men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves, if you've ever heard a description of AIDS, this is it, receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was fit. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication. When we first began preaching against divorce in 1951, 2, 3, 4, even before I was out of the Navy and when I began to preach in 1955, it was about 30%. Now it's well more than half in every big urban area in the United States. Just the other day I saw a statistic on a game show where somebody had to ask a question and answer it of the percentage of sorority girls in the United States who believe they ought to save themselves for marriage. They guessed way too high. They guessed 20 or so percent. It was way too high. It was something like 7 percent. Seven out of a hundred of them think maybe it's better to wait to have sex with their husband on their wedding night. The other 93, well, that's college. It says here, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, and what in the world is a neutron or an atomic bomb? What are the inventions and the engines of destruction people have invented and are even trying to convert to peaceful use and blowing up and the rain that's coming down is giving us another little sample of uh, Soviet radioactivity. Inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, and of course juvenile delinquency is now an old hack, and we understand that in the first place. Too many American families are single family situations as a result of the breakup of marriage, and sometimes that's not any one person's fault. Sometimes that just happens as a result of Satan and his demons and oppressions of society and literature and magazines and art and music and movies and television and friends and the desire to experiment and a dozen other inputs, I suppose. 
of people who were sometimes brought up in church and think they were behind the door and everybody was out there having fun, smoking corn silk and finding out what girls are like behind the barn. And they think, well, I've been denied all of that, so now it's my turn. Baby, you have come a long way, it says on a Virginia Slim ad. Yes, she really has. And it's about time the ministry of the Church of God International got involved. Without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable and merciful, who knowing the judgment of God, and that they which commit such things, which are sins, are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Therefore, man broke it into chapters, but Paul continues, You are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are that judge. For wherein you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you judge, you that judge, do the same things. The ministry of Jesus Christ of Nazareth must be clean. The church must be clean. We must be a vessel and a vehicle through which the Holy Spirit of God can flow, which is called rivers of living water, which will bring forth the result we seek. It is only in that way that we are going to grow. But we are such that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And do you think, O man, that judge them that do these things and does the same, that you shall escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness and forbearance and long-suffering? And God has suffered with us for too many millennia to count, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance but after your hardness, and he's writing to the church, and your impenitent heart, you treasure up unto yourself wrath against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Now the Apostle Paul said that he was not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. My father, and bless his heart and bless his memory, because he was my dad, was. I'm sorry to tell you that, but he was. My father could not bring himself to go before Marcos, Suharto, and some of these other people as an apostle of God or as an evangelist of Jesus Christ. He went with a completely different framework, with a completely different title, and with a completely different message. I think I know now why, someday, even as John the Baptist was put in jail for his pains, I too may be brought before kings and governors.